please stand. I'm going to read from Exodus 11. almost said Luke 11. Exodus 11, 11, 1 through 9, as we come to the 10th and final plague. Eleven one. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight... I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last week, we had an overview look of the first nine plagues. This week, we are slowing down, and you'll see why, to the tenth plague, one of the remarkable passages in Scripture. Right at the outset, in the passage that I read, you see that God tells Pharaoh through Moses, the firstborn in all the land of Egypt are going to die. Now, why the firstborn? Can you imagine if on one night all the firstborn here would die? I mean, we've got a lot of turmoil in our country. We've got a, a lot of turmoil in our world, but nothing like that turmoil. Uh, why the firstborn? Well, the Bible will teach later. In fact, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Exodus 22. It will teach that the firstborn, all the firstborn, belong to God. Here's 22, 29. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with his mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. And God teaches the Israelites that all the firstborn sons belong to me. And moreover, not only the firstborn sons, but the firstborn of the flocks, they were sacrificed. The firstborn of the harvest, you bring the first fruits to God. All the firstborn, uh, first part of our income goes to God. Now, fortunately, God in His grace allowed the Israelites to redeem their firstborn sons. So they did not have to literally give them to Him. But the, the firstborn, uh, you could redeem them with money and keep them. But not the firstborn of the cattle and not the firstborn of the flocks. I think God was teaching us, teaching the Israelites, that God is first in our lives. We bring the first to God. I think he's also teaching us that it all belongs to God. He owns everything in the universe. We don't. 
and giving the firstborn back just as a reminder to us. Now, of course, that is carried over with the tithe. We bring to God the first part of our income because God is first. Sometimes people ask, you know, do you tithe off the, the gross or the net? Well, I tithe first because God is before the government. And uh, you, you, when you bring the first part of your income, you're saying, God, you're first. God, it all belongs to you. God, I'm grateful, and I bring back and trust a part of that. You don't bring the leftovers to God. You don't go to the end of the month and think, man, do I have anything left over? Uh, no, in faith, you bring the first part to God. So that's what they were doing. Now, can you imagine living in Israel at this time, living in Egypt at this time, and God saying, all the firstborn are going to die in one night? And you think about that. Oh, man, that just sounds so cruel. Well, it would be cruel if you or I went around killing firstborn. One of the basic mistakes that we make in the spiritual life is to confuse us with God. God is God, and he alone has the prerogative to give life and death. God gives us life, and God decides how many days we live on this earth. We don't just die randomly because we get a germ, but we, we live out the days ordained by God, and then when we die, because God alone has the authority over life and death. And if God chose on one night to take all of the firstborn in the land, he could do it. He's God. He has that prerogative. Now, God in mercy gave a, an escape, gave a provision. He told the people this, if, we didn't read it in our passage, but we will read it, if you will kill a lamb and sprinkle its blood, spread its blood on the doorpost, then I will pass over your house. I'll let that lamb die instead of the firstborn son. So in mercy and grace, he gave that grace. And so that's what happened. Now, in this narrative, the first uh, uh, Exodus 11 gives the warning. This is going to come, Pharaoh. And then in Exodus 12, the first 20 verses are all about, in the future, telling the Israelites to celebrate this Passover year after year. And then in 1221, we come to the actual event on the night itself. And that's where we'll pick it up. 1221. Here's the night of Passover in Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Now, this was new for them. Your firstborn is going to die too unless you do something about it. And so you see that this uh, event is more than just judgment on Egypt for the slavery. This is talking about sin of the people. And the Israelites had just as much sin as the Egyptians. They too needed atonement. And he said, your firstborn is going to die for the family unless you take a lamb, kill the lamb, and, and, and that lamb dies in place of your son. Okay, he goes on, describing more. 22. Take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop, think of a Bushy shrub, you know, just a lot of little shrubbery down here on your stick. Okay, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil that is the horizontal post over the door, the horizontal board over the door. Touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you should go out of the door of the house until the morning. And so that lamb is killed, the blood is collected in a basin. You take a little bushy shrub, you dip it in there, and then you go to your front porch, and you um, 
You know, it's kind of messy, but you would spread the blood on the top of that door and on the two sides so that when the tenth plague came and God sees the blood, he says, okay, I'm going to substitute the lamb's blood for the firstborn son, and I'm going to pass over that house. It's an amazing thing. 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house, your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and your sons forever. Now, can you imagine being in that family, being the firstborn son? Maybe you're 10 years old. Maybe you're 5 years old. Maybe you're, maybe you're 15 years old. And you sit down that night to eat that lamb. And you are thinking to yourself, if that lamb wouldn't be dead, then I would have to die of the sins of my family. That lamb died and I can live. And God says, when I see the blood from that lamb, I'm going to pass over. Now, what is it about the blood? Well, it's very simple. Later, the Bible will clarify more and more that blood just stands for life. For example, in Leviticus 17, 22, here is... Probably the most important statement about blood and life in the Old Testament. 1722, make that 1711. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, your life is wrapped up in the blood. So if the blood is shed, that stands for your life. And so later in the New Testament, we reread that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. That blood means blood shed or the life dies. We are saved by the death of Jesus. This represents the life and death uh, of anybody. Later in Hebrews 9, 22, there's a similar statement made when God says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Life must be sacrificed because the Bible says that we are born in sin, that we've got sin, and that means that we are separated from a holy God. And the Bible calls that death, spiritual death. We're separated. So we've got to die eternally, separated from God, unless a substitute dies in our place. In the Old Testament, there were all these lambs and cattle and uh, animals that died. And they died as a substitute for the sin of the people. But they couldn't really cover the, 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 the sins of human beings made in the image of God. But they were temporary coverings until one day God himself, God the Son, would step out of heaven and he would die in our place. So that's what happens. So back to the text in the Passover, verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say... It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. My God, you're going to spare our houses? You're going to spare our sons? Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And then that same night, at midnight, it happens. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. 
And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now, isn't that interesting the way he closes that? The first time he's shown any sign of softness of heart. You know, here's the man that when Moses first goes to him back in chapter 5 to say, let my people go, is what God says. He basically says, who's the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I'm not going to let your people go. No way. But by the 10th plague, he knows who the Lord is. And he says, go, please go. But bless me also. Bless me also. He's recognizing who the real God is. He's going to have a change of heart, but he is sending him out. Please go and bless me. All righty, what happens? 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had said, as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Estimates are about 2 million people left the land of Israel, headed to the promised land. They came 430 years earlier with 70 people. Jacob the patriarch, his sons. 400 years later, because of God's blessing, they leave his 2 million. 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, can you imagine that? How long have we been existing in this country? You know, 225, 240 years or something like that. Almost twice as long they have been in Egypt. So this is a huge thing. All two million beginning the trek away out of Egypt because God had delivered them and rescued them. Now this would have happened in about 1440 B.C. are our best estimates. That means way back in 1870 B.C. Think Abraham, 2100 then Isaac, then Jacob, 1870 B.C., all the 70 members of the family go to Egypt. Later they become slaves. And then in 1440 B.C., way before Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, those guys, way before Jesus comes to the planet, God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. Almost 2 million. And then the rest of the chapter, he repeats Remember what happened here. Remember this. Don't ever forget this. Now, a couple of notes to understand this passage and what happens in the 10th plague. First of all, we've got to understand about the lamb, the lambs that were slain. Because in the Bible, there is a long theology of the lamb. This is chapter 2 of that theology. Chapter 1 occurs with the very first Jew, the founder of the Jewish people, when God said, Abraham, you're going to start a new people. You don't have any kids now, but I'm going to give you a whole host of kids. And after he had waited 25 years to have the first child with, with Sarah, finally, and the boy grows up some, 
God incredibly tells him, okay, Moses, I mean, okay, Abraham, you take Isaac, your son, and you go up to Mount Moriah in modern-day Jerusalem, is where it would be. You go up to Mount Moriah, and you sacrifice Isaac. Remember, Isaac is the firstborn. He belongs to me. And people in that culture would get that. They would know that. So Abraham, he obeys, hard as you could imagine. They make the three-day trip. They're almost there up to Mount Moriah, modern-day Jerusalem, uh, maybe the same place as the temple, maybe the same place that Jesus died at Calvary. Uh, they're heading up there, and his young son, I, Isaac, how old is he, 12, 13? He's got the wood. They've got the rock to start the fire. And Isaac says to his dad, Dad, uh, we, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but, but where's the lamb? And remember, in faith, Abraham says, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He didn't want to tell his son, look, God's going to kill you and then take you back up, resurrect you from life. He says, the Lord will provide. Abraham gets him up there. He ties him. He binds him to that sacrifice. He raises the knife, fully intending to kill him, and God stops him and says, look, there is a lamb. Kill the lamb instead of your son. And for the first chapter in the theology of the lamb, a lamb dies in place of a human being. And God is teaching us that an innocent victim can die in our place. An innocent victim, like a lamb, can die in the place of a human because of our sin. And that was chapter 1. That was 2100 B.C., 1440 B.C., chapter 2, on Passover night, you take a lamb, you kill the lamb, the lamb will substitute. An innocent victim can die in your place. And then not long after that, they get to Mount Sinai. God gives them the 613 commandments of the law, and embedded in that law is the ceremonial law about the sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system will call for lamb upon lamb, cattle upon cattle, animal upon animal, thousands upon thousands of animals over the centuries to be sacrificed for sin. An innocent victim can die as a temporary covering for human sin. And it just goes on and being taught like that throughout the Old Testament. But in Isaiah chapter 53, it becomes even more clear because this is a marvelous passage about the cross of Christ. In fact, some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it has so much about the gospel. And in Isaiah 53, verse 6 talks about he's going to bear our sin. And 57, we read that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So this is chapter 3 in the Old Testament, that the Messiah, the very Son of God, your King, is going to die, and we're going to call him the Lamb who dies in our place. An innocent victim can die for our sin. And then, that was 700 B.C., 700 long years passed by. A little baby is born in Bethlehem. He's raised, he's, he, he's raised up. When he's about 30 years old, he begins his three-year ministry. And when he begins and launches his public ministry, there is a God-appointed forerunner by the name of John the Baptist. And one day, John the Baptist, as an adult, sees, uh, sees Jesus, and what does he say to him immediately? He says, Behold, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin. He says, Behold, look, everybody look. There is the Lamb of God 
Started in chapter 1 in Genesis 22. Started in chapter, uh, chapter 2 in Exodus 12. Chapter uh, 3, the sacrificial system. Uh, then in Isaiah 15, here he is. He's on the planet. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An innocent victim can die in our place. And then later throughout the New Testament, we have that kind of language. Let me read one or two of them. 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and his blood ransoms us. In the Old Testament, the firstborn sons were ransomed with so many shekels. But we are ransomed from our sin, our slavery, by the blood that is the death of Christ. And then one culminating passage, I think the greatest of all passages about the theology of the Lamb in the Bible, when we come to Revelation 5, the throne room in heaven one day that you and I will be at if we've trusted Christ. And one day in heaven, the Messiah, Jesus, will be there right with the Father. Verse 8, and when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. He's not a woolly, furry, four-footed creature. He is the Lamb of God. He looks like us. He's a human. He's God, but he is the Lamb of God. Each holding a harp and the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every prayer you pray is going to be represented at that throne room in heaven one day. Precious to God. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's us. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb, the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. The throne room in heaven, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, will be worshiped. So we've got the theology of the Lamb, starting in Genesis 22, big chapter in Exodus 12. Now, when the Israelites get to the promised land, God made it very clear, emphatically clear, you need to celebrate this once a year at the, at the given time, and, it, and the time occurred in the spring, Passover celebration. And he gives them uh, kind of the order and what to go through, and you've got to have the unleavened bread, and you've got to have the, the cup of wine, and you've got to have the lamb as a sacrifice. And they remembered when God rescued them from their slavery for the rest of their days. They did. In fact, um, growing up in Madisonville, Texas, there weren't a lot of Jewish people around me. It's a little dinky town where Bucky's is today. And um, I had never been around a Passover meal celebration when I was in seminary. Um, a race, uh, road race in Tyler, Texas, they invited me to come and run in their race. It was over Passover weekend, Easter weekend. The race director was Jewish, a professor at uh, Tyler Junior College, if I remember correctly. And it was on a Friday night, and so they invited me to celebrate a Passover with them, my first time. And it was so fascinating. 
and the father of the family stands up and presides. Now, that was celebrated year after year after year, beginning with 1440, or when they get to the Promised Land, B.C. And then one day Jesus is born. Jesus uh, grows up to an adult, um, has three years of public ministry, and then in the culminating year, in April, he goes up to Jerusalem to die. And it's Passover celebration. city is jammed. And he tells his disciples, go prepare Passover. They go to an upper room somewhere in the old city of Jerusalem. And he presides over that as the father. And uh, he celebrates Passover. And in doing so, he will transform it into communion. Now, when Jesus celebrated Passover, remembering the, the Exodus way back then, there are two big surprises. First of all, when he gets to the bread, the unleavened bread, he does not say what the fathers had said for centuries. This is the bread of your affliction, the suffering of the people. He doesn't say that. What does he say? This is the bread, uh, broke, this is my body broken for you. Don't you imagine they, they, they gulped? He oh, said that? Uh, he's talking about his affliction, my broken body. It no longer is the issue the suffering of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, but my suffering on the cross. This is my body broken for you. The second big surprise was that there were three crucial elements in any Passover meal. You had the unleavened bread. You had the wine, the cup of wine. Actually, there are four cups of wine. And then you had the lamb. Now, in the Gospels, it's very clear. They had the bread. In fact, he holds it up. This is my body. It represents my body. Just like we got crackers down there, unleavened bread. And then he takes the cup. He says, this is my blood. In fact, it's a new covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant. I'm starting something new. But where in the Gospel is there any mention of lamb? There is no lamb at the table, on the table, because there is the lamb of God at the table. It's like he's saying, I am the lamb. You had a lamb there that represented the substitute for the firstborn sons. I am the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And he dies for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul explains communion. He says, for I received from the Lord, that is Jesus, what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, unleavened bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, not the bread of your affliction. This is my body, which is for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, every time you take communion, remember me. No longer is the instruction, remember the exodus when God rescued them from slavery to the Egyptians. Now the command, remember the cross when God rescued us from our slavery to sin. Remember me. Remember the cross. Remember your victory. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The Mosaic covenant ends today, or ends tomorrow morning. New covenant time. New relationship time here. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember the cross. Remember the cross. We no longer remember the old covenant. We remember the new covenant. Remember me, and I purchased your sin. Church, we, we celebrate communion every week. There's no command how many times to celebrate it, but, but I love celebrating it weekly. I did not grow up doing that. I brought that to Wood's Edge because of the emphasis on the cross in the Bible and how the, the whole Bible is Christ-centered and cross-centered. We remember the cross. 
Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. Twice in that passage, when Jesus gives the bread and the, and the cup, he says, remember me. Do this and remember me. If in a few minutes, five minutes, you come up to the communion tray and you take the bread and you take the cup and then you go back to your seat or you kneel up here and your mind is a thousand miles away, you completely disobeyed and missed the whole point of communion. The point of communion is not for you to be morbidly introspective about, oh, my sins, you know, oh, you know, oh I wasn't worthy this week. You missed the point completely at that point because the whole point is not to focus on yourself but on Christ, a Savior. Yeah, you had some sin this week. You bet you did. And you got a Savior who paid for that sin with his shed blood. And I'm saying, yeah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The whole point of communion, to remember me. Do this, remembering me, remembering me. Focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Okay. Um, when the Israelites, on that Passover night, way back in Egypt, can you imagine them, when they were uh, taking that meal and going to bed, that they were thinking, oh God, spare us, spare our son. Spare him, Lord God. We've got the blood out there, Lord God. We're depending on the blood. We are under the blood of this lamp. And that's what we do with God. Lord, my whole hope is the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. I am under the blood. I am under the blood. You get to heaven one day, God says, why should I let you into heaven? Lord, I'm under the blood. I'm under the blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You don't even think about, oh, I was good enough. I tried hard. I went to church some. You don't even think about that. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One of my favorite stories about this, about the blood of Jesus, true story that happened in London, 1971. Two men were doing a video, a film on the homeless people. And that's back before they had much attention with the homeless people. And they were, you know, analyzing and kind of studying, you know, how they went through their day and what their life was like. So many of them were either alcoholics, drug addicts, mentally disturbed. And uh, they had this uh, very famous composer, Gavin Bryars was his name, that was going to work with them and put this to music. And when they uh, had this one certain homeless man, he was an older man, when they got to his video, there was always this low undercurrent of sound, and it sounded like muttering or gibberish to them. They thought, well, he's just kind of mumbling to himself. But one day, Gavin Bryars cleared out the background noise, and, and, and he could tell that this man, this homeless man, was singing. He was singing. He had an untrained voice, but he never wavered from pitch. And he had this simple little song that he would repeat over and over, hour after hour. This man did not drink. He did not socialize, had a sunny disposition. And he was an old man who just sang this song over and over and over. One day, uh, Gavin Bryars was at his studio uh, putting this together, and he made it a loop so he would just repeat time after time. And, and he, he stops for coffee, and he leaves his door open that the, the song, the sound of this man singing is running. And uh, other people on the floor could begin hearing the song. And he comes back in about five minutes, and the floor is completely quiet, and there are a few people cr crying, weeping listening to the song. Uh, this is the actual uh, track of the man's song. This is what they heard. Peter's blood never fell for me. Yet, never fell for me. Yet, Jesus' blood 
never found me yet. This one thing I know, for he loved me so. Jesus' blood never found me yet. Never found me yet. Jesus' blood. Never found me yet This one thing I know For he loves me The man died before they could, uh, he could hear the CD. Do you know that's true for you? That Jesus' blood has never failed me yet, nor will it. This one thing I know, for he loves me so. And every week in communion, we're reminded that Jesus' blood covers our sin. Are you under the blood of Jesus? Please stand. Friend, if you're not under the blood of Jesus, get there now. Breathe a prayer. Jesus, all my hope is in you and your shed blood. All my hope is in you. And he'll hear that prayer. Lord, thank you for a Savior. Thank you for Jesus, who ransomed us, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Lord, we are grateful. And we want to live for you because you died for us. Amen.